Didi Talks. In this episode, I got to turn the tables on Louis Theroux. Good morning, sir. Good morning, Troy. How are you? I'm very good, thank you. Thanks very much for doing this. I really appreciate it. I know you're a busy man. Pleasure. Because I am stepping into your world and entering your field, shall we say? Yeah. Well, you know, I, as you know, I interviewed you for my podcast last year. So one hand washes the other, as they say. It would have been churlish for me to decline an invitation to appear on your podcast. But this means that then when I recruit you to my five-a-side football team, you have to turn up for for an hour and kick a ball around. I'll be there. One with scrubs. I would say on record, you've been nothing but supporting me. I massively appreciate everything you've done for me, uh, especially coming into this space. Well, you're busy. You're still footballing around. And by the way, anyone who comes on my podcast is doing me a favour, right? And that's the way I look at it. And I owe them um, a debt of gratitude for taking the time to speak to me. And what you did when we spoke was something incredible, which was Mm -hmm. bring a story of, you know, of an upbringing that wasn't always easy, of getting into football, and just a humanity that you expressed that connected with, I think, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people who might who might never even uh, have known about you before. You know, like people in America, elsewhere, mm-hmm. for whom maybe Watford isn't first on their list Definitely. Uh, uh, of things to check in the morning. And so, you know, that was a great thing. No, it worked very well. Uh, both of us and I appreciate you giving me the platform I was doing some research because normally what I would do as you know is sit down have an interview make it make it more of a conversation but I really wanted it to be something a bit more tangible obviously didn't want to be disrespectful to yourself so I did a bit of research and apologies if any of this is wrong uh, Wikipedia isn't the greatest and strongest source of information okay I did read uh, your mother is English your father is American but you were born in Singapore. Correct. Was that through work? This is going to be like the world's easiest quiz. This is going to be like Mastermind, <laughs> where my special subject is myself. <laughs> well, what was life growing up for you? Because obviously you were born in Singapore. I read that you came to the UK at one, maybe two. Yes, I have no recollections of Singapore and I've never been back. Oh, wow. And it's just a quirk of fate. My parents were both teaching. My dad was also a novelist and went on to become a successful novelist and travel writer. My mum, a radio broadcaster, but back then they were, um, they were teaching at the University of Singapore, I think. Mm-hmm. And, you know, had met in Africa, in East Africa. So, so they were both people who, from different parts of the world, had met through kismet and through fate, and, and then um, had my, first my brother, two years older, and then me. Mm-hmm. And I think um, sort of always had that kind of global outlook in common, although they did end up divorcing, you know, like 20 years later. But for me, I haven't, as I say, for me, like life begins really in Catford, Southeast London. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the point at which my first memories take place. Yeah. Uh, and, and it was, you know, what can I say? Like, it was, it, it seemed fine. It was, it was, I had a happy upbringing. Like I was, I'd all the usual like bumps and 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 kind of just to kind of but I was well provided for my parents were generally present I felt loved and you can't ask for a lot more than that really no that is true that is very true I just think that what I've tried to do with this podcast is get everyone to understand that Louis normal and Troy's normal aren't the same but we use the same word normal to generalize everything I'm trying to get people 
an understand of what Louis normal looks like as a younger man. As you say, you had both parents there, you felt loved. That sets you up for what you become and because your parents would probably give you a framework to work off. Would you agree? Yeah, I would say so. And in fact, um, you know, even though they, they ended up getting divorced and they did argue quite a lot, and I've written about that in my book. Uh, it's not me just nakedly plucking my book called Gotta Get Through This, available for <laughs> Macmillan. It's in paperback. But actually, that was the way it was. Yeah, they fought a bit, you know, argued. But to me, that felt like in some ways an expression of love, if that doesn't sound weird. You know, like that was them. In some ways, an argument is it can be healthy, a way of communicating, right? And mm -hmm. and conflict is part of all relationships. So I I didn't um, take that to mean that they were necessarily unhappy together. There's hoovering going on. Is it, is that, is that... No, no, that's absolutely fine. Don't worry. This is what happens when we uh, do some recording on a Wednesday morning. It's what happens. Oh, yeah. So the foundation they gave me was a sense of curiosity about the world, um, a feeling that the life of the mind was important. Um, a, what else? I suppose... Well, I suppose more than anything, really, just the feeling of of being valued and, and loved, and and, um, and that they were that they were there for me, mm -hmm. right? Which sounds maybe self evident, or or should do, I suppose, but I suppose isn't always isn't always the case. No, no, it's not. It's certainly not always the case. In my situation, as we spoke about, I had both parents around, but you know, dad was in and out of jail, obviously, and. But I still suffer with that now, that there's certain things um, emotionally I can't attach to because I've never had that. Mm -hmm. Like giving my kids a kiss for very strange for me because I, I never got kisses. Uh, I just got a pat on the back, come on, let's carry on. No, I, uh, I think what you just said there were quite key in terms of the mind your parents gave you, uh, you know, for the world is your oyster kind of thing. Let your mind go and travel mm -hmm. and you see something in my community, I didn't leave Birmingham until I was 15. I didn't know outside of Birmingham. Does that tie into you and who you've become now and what you want to do so much? I would call it investigative journalism, but I don't know if that is a, you know, doing you a disservice because you're a lot more than that. I think um, I, I, I respect investigative journalists enormously. I don't embrace the term only because <clears throat> Um, that summons to mind someone kind of almost like a private investigator mm -hmm. digging through um, old documents or trawling the internet or making phone calls or doing stakeouts or doorstepping. Whereas I think of what I do as immersive journalism, which basically means I spend time with people with their permission for the most part. And, you know, it has its strengths and weaknesses. Like you wouldn't want all journalism to be investigative, nor, nor would you want it all to be immersive. Um, because I sort of depend on, you know, with investigations, they film people secretly, which for the most part, we never do. Mm -hmm. But so you, when I'm around a, a subject, I sort of depend on charm, tenacity, and, um, and basically it's putting the hours in to, to get people to open up and to disclose things that they might have hidden. But it, it can also happen that we, you know, no, you can't get to all the stories that way. So if someone's not going to let you in, then you need other techniques. And that's where my um, sort of the end of the road for me, for the most part, you know, it's, I can't take on subjects where I'm not really 
or only with extreme difficulty or creativity can I take on subjects where I'm not being invited in. Mm -hmm. But to answer your question, I think, yeah, I think my parents, since they gave me, whether explicitly or just by sort of osmosis, like the feel of being around them, they made me think about um, the world and how it how it operates. Like my dad, one of my, among my earliest memories is my dad listening to the BBC World Service. Like, and his big thing was always foreign capitals. Like he could, you, any country in the world, he could tell you the capital. And he's been almost everywhere. I think he's been to, I don't know, he'd be able to tell you, but maybe 200 countries. Oh, wow. and, but not just been there, but written about them in, in numerous travel books. And my mum, as I mentioned, a radio producer for the BBC World Service. So I think I was always brought up to imagine that and it sounds, it's going to sound a little bit pompous, and they wouldn't have put it this way, but that we were made, well, I was going to say global citizens, but that's a really a weird term. But basically that we we weren't overly attached to a national identity. Like, how could I? Because I was half American, right? And my dad was always going, going on about, like, I can't even vote in this country. Like, <laughs> and my mum prided herself on being kind of cosmopolitan and um, not being in a knee-jerk way, I would say, patriotic. So, and, and on top of that, I, you know, I, it just, I had a, part, a US passport, so I could travel in America. And when I, so when I left university in 1991, I really had no clue what I was going to do with myself. I had a, a degree from, from university in history, and I'd done, you know, I'd always done well academically. Mm -hmm. But almost to the point of it being... At, weirdly a handicap like I was so focused on academic study that I had no real thought I, I, I looked at people who were like I know what I, I really want to be whatever like a banker or a civil servant or a journalist or people who who actually had an idea outside their academic career of what they wanted to do with their lives or indeed like a footballer right I think wow I wish I knew what I wanted to be because I have no clue all I know is I'm good at writing essays mm -hmm. and studying and I, I, I and, and so I did think about being an academic, but long story short, I instead I I went to America to just bum around for a bit and try and figure out what I was going to do with myself. That's honestly crazy to me to hear because academics were so um, like school was such a big fearful thing for me, learning and getting things wrong in front of people, you know stuff like that. The emotion of what made me feel naked at times. I used to dismiss school just because of the fear as well. Um, right. I'm not very good at reading out loud. I could memorize what the uh, you know teacher would say, in a, and I'd read that paragraph like no problem at all. If she randomly said, "Troy, can you come and read this line?" Ah, oh, I'd do something that would get me kicked out of school just because of the fear. I think it's a great story for people to listen to, especially with so many people now with how this mad year has been. Um, or 18 months or so, actually, if you're talking about people's grades, uh, that, you know, you were probably at home now studying, but don't have to, you know, the luxury of going to America for however long it takes to figure it out. So often that story so needs to be told, to be honest, and people need to hear it. Yeah, I think, I, I mean, I feel very grateful in many respects for the education I got, but in other ways, I see it as almost slightly weird. Mm -hmm. Like it was so... So in some ways, esoteric, like diving deep into like medieval French kings, you know, when I was sort of 14 or 15, maybe not 14, but certainly mm. 15 or 16 years old, you know, the, the Valois kings of France. And I suppose that's a good exercise in kind of 
memorization and learning and organizing material but in another way it's pretty bizarre like i'm needless to say through my professional career i've never had any reason to talk about philip the fourth or philip the sixth <laughs> philip the sixth was the valois one i think of france and charles the fifth and and actually um so i try to when it, you know i've got kids as you know and there's a temptation to overdo the academics right and say like if you don't do well in school it's going to be a disaster it may and that message probably needs to be heard but I, I also believe in alternative career paths to success. And I think um, I, I, I needed to let go of my um, some sort of sort of academic straitjacket in order to in order to find whatever success I did find. Yeah, you needed to be free. Yeah, you needed a mind to be free, to feel free. Yeah. I think uh, society does that though. I feel like now, especially when I look around, everyone feels you have to have the house, you have to have the kids by 30. It's like... Well, there's a long period after that. Not always you have to have it figured out by 30. I know a lot of my mates who are mid-30s now have had much more life experiences and travelled and just getting up and making mistakes along the way. Uh, I don't know. At professionalism, we've had to, you know, be really constrained to making sure that publicly we're getting into, you know, a little amount of trouble as possible. We're not having too many drinks and being splattered all over the paper. I think that's the thing with society. Um, is it to express the people that there is, there's alternative ways of living? It's not just a set code and you go to school and get a job, but then get a house and then get the kids. And yeah, then I it's... think absolutely. And I also think that in the academic context, it's also the case that it's just such a limited way of assessing what someone's abilities are, right? And there's when you look around in my field of work, what what I'm looking for, you know, I've started a production company. What I'm in, interested in is people who can tell stories. Like working hard is obviously really important, but mm -hmm. but the ability to think about character development, conflict, narrative structure, to to have a sort of quirky view of the world that allows you to recognize <clears throat> drama or interrogate the ways in which um, stories can be told in a way that engages people <clears throat> and you know up to a point that can be taught but up to a point it's just something that you develop other ways or maybe even like have or don't have right mm -hmm. and i'm being kind of i don't want to be make a big sort of tub thumping thing but i suppose um what i'm driving at is that <clears throat> there's a lot of talented people around who haven't come up through the academic system and you know, it's up to people like me to try and figure out how we reach them, and like, and 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 to let anyone who's listening to this know that um, there's, there's, you may not know how talented you are. If that doesn't sound weird, like you actually may have skills you don't even know about because they haven't been picked up on, it, and it worries me sometimes that all the you know the, 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 the people are getting educated and 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 they're getting into the great professions and stuff, and the people who, for whatever reason, haven't thrived inside mainstream education. Are getting overlooked so so that, that, that's something i think about and it's something i try and stay aware of no that's that's quite some message mate when i was doing some research from when we last spoke it was late in may of last year and we we started the lockdown obviously the world has imploded on itself since then obviously a major part of last year i think was black lives matter i wanted to call it a situation because america is looking like a political entity and here it's more of a movement 
that everyone's followed. The obvious impact and social element that's happened with that is obvious. Companies like Sky and BBC are now actively trying to improve diversity. I just wondered what somebody like yourself who's worked with, not worked with, that sounds a bit bad, has investigated neo-Nazi groups and anti-Semitic groups and people like that. Do you think we have a real issue of race in this country? Uh, well, yes. I would think it's self-evident, right? Um, because if you look at the way in which power is distributed and the levels of achievement, you know, across racial groups, levels of opportunity, all of that speaks for itself. It would be maybe in a way surprising if we didn't have a racism issue, given the country's history, right? Like, I, I think... Um, you know, and we are where we are. I'm not trying to attach shame to anyone in particular. I think um, I think what's been good over the past year or so is maybe an increased awareness and a sense that um, I wouldn't say for the first time because I'm old enough to remember the 80s. You know, and 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 certainly as far back as the 60s in civil rights, there's been efforts to um, to create more social justice to create more equal and just society. But it feels as though we've been regalvanized in some way. And I think I see that as a positive. And so to, to answer your question, yeah, it doesn't mean like, oh, white people need to go out in the public square and flagellate themselves, right? That That's not the message. In fact, in certain respects, some of that what's called virtue signaling, you know, I think is counterproductive. You know, I think it's more about, um, it's more about, obviously it's more about, action action that that actually does make make significant change you know rather than sort of hashtag activism no no uh, thank you for answering that the reason i say is because i just think uh, in, a, in a time like the 60s and the 80s i think now the spotlight is really been put on on people everybody i feel like whenever people watch the george floyd video unless you're a monster that has to put something you know or pull at the heartstrings I think that's where the, the focus has changed. It was eight minutes and 32 seconds of raw, uncut, where you've just watched somebody die. It was murder, ultimately. Do you get what I mean? I think that was what made the, the focus change. But I just wonder, when you talk about the 60s and the 80s, is it now more prevalent because it's on social media? Because people live on social media. Is it now so instantaneous? I think it's probably, a, a, that's part of it. I think being in lockdown and having the t the sort of the, almost like the narrowness of of life where we were able to focus on things in a, in 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 a way that we hadn't before you know it felt as though the level of boredom across America and the UK was so great that it almost incubated these um sort of um convulsive moral outrages and and, and, you know, in this case, that was basically a positive. I also think that it just, look, look at how, you know, societies in the, certainly in America and the UK are trending like towards more diversity. Like I think people of color have more of a voice because, um, because they're greater in number. And I think, um, I mean, I, I might be out on a limb with this, but it seems to be like white people are having to recognize that this is the way it is. Like, you know, you like it or lump it. You either basically embrace it or you become kind of a weird racist who's living in an embattled um, kind of bunker mentality trying to 
preserve um, an age that's that's gone, right? No, I agree. That's the thing that I struggle with currently. It's seen like a, a lot of footballers are getting abused at the moment. Generally, if you play it by by game, then you're you're a monkey or you're this idea of there's there's things coming out sideways in frustration of the year that we've had or the last eighteen months that we've had. I think that's the the message I'm trying to get to people as it's not uh, racism doesn't mean you have to stand around with a white hood on, for example, or wear a certain uniform that says I'm a racist. There's certain things that I think, even from my community, there may be jokes that were said in the past that are no longer, you know, acceptable. Uh, now, you, like, you can't, you know, if I remember as a kid, you, you'd say something like, you know, there was this Englishman, this Irishman, this Scottishman, you in a pub, these were the jokes. Now, you can't say those things because that is the same as the racism, in my opinion. It's still, still racial. It still is sorted to a certain demographic of people. And there's no way you can do that anymore. That's funny you should say. I remember those jokes too. You don't hear them anymore. And I, and actually, when I think back to my childhood, certainly the jokes, the racism was directed uh, mainly at the Irish. Mm -hmm. Actually, it was the it was a go to thing. Like, what does an Irishman blah blah blah? And um, I haven't thought about that very much. But I don't know if that was through because you know you leave playgrounds and then you, you don't hear the playground joke so much but that was the standard playground joke in the 70s was yeah. a joke about about the irishman i think when people hear you're catching it both sides because you've got irish heritage as well <laughs> i do it's I a do. double whammy that's why i think it's a i'm a bit more of a balanced view of things because i don't see it just as a black issue or just an irish issue i, I figure there's a lot of a lot of other people that um, are sitting with like discrimination as well yeah uh, I've seen with, with gay people who I wish we'd spoken about, you know, in, in this gaze within football. I said I think with you that there's there's definitely a you know a gay within football. There's definitely more than one, um, but you know you just wish they'd come out. But how do we know how it feels for a gay couple to come out of a restaurant and people go Ugh, or hurl abuse at them, uh, you know, for for just being gay and happy? Uh, we don't know what that feels like. How should we be in a situation to say to them? how it feels or how they should feel or what they should feel. Uh, we don't know what everyone's feeling, you know, is well, one thing that we do know everyone's feeling is independent. I think that's an issue that people need to understand with race in every community is that the feeling of, of offense is individual to uh, that person. hundred percent. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I think, um, look, it may be that one day people can tell, um, these kinds of jokes again, like it's not going to be any time soon. It's about power in the end, and it's about the, it's a in, in, you know it's in a sense it's about bullying. You know the definition of bullying isn't physical violence; it's physical violence against or or, or, or emotional violence or or um, sort of preying upon someone who's weaker than you. Like actually fighting back isn't bullying. That's that's the that's that's righteous um, self defense, right? And by the same token. Joke. I mean, I'm, I love jokes. Like jokes are life, right? Jokes are actually, to me, you know, like the, the, the what makes life bearable when it's when when things are looking really bad and alleviating tension through jokes, creating um, relationships or bonding with people. Like my wife, probably more than anything, probably her physical beauty is up there as well. But her sense of humor is really what drew us together. Like the fact that we she could make fun of me in a way that I found 
for some reason, endearing and a little bit humiliating. But the, even when we're having a tough time, right, whatever, we can make each other laugh. Oh, I can make her laugh. She can make me. And so jokes and humor in general is the stuff of life. So I would, I'm very sensitive to the idea that, oh, you know, pi, you know, like whatever they call it, wokeness or political correctness is killing humor. I, I also, I, I give people a lot of leeway, certainly in the comedy space, like offensive comedians. I sort of think a lot of that stuff um, is, I mean, it, it, it sounds a bit vague, but I try not to be overly censorious. But that being said, yeah, it's so much of it is lazy and, and, and vicious and nasty, right? And that's where, and, and, and for as long as there are people who are as a group kind of being in some way downtrodden or marginalized or made to feel less, then you have to, you know, you have to think about how your words land. Anyway, that sounds like me being all pious, but I do, I do. It's not as though I feel as though like, oh, it's so obvious. Like we just can't tell any jokes anymore. Every, you know, or if someone's been told a, a joke that's been taken the wrong way or just doesn't come off right, like, I think they should be called out for it, but it shouldn't be a life end, you know, career ending thing for them. You know what I mean? Like I do take a sort of certain common sense standard as well. And I sort of think, just to get this out, like I think in the, in the American context, there's been times, maybe UK too, there's been times when through a sense of risk averse, aversion, big companies have let people go or marginalized uh, either performers or um, directors. And, and because they said something like 10 years ago on Twitter and you sort of think like, well, mm -hmm. actually, you know, have they apologized? Have they moved on? You know what I mean? Well, yeah, 100%. I think that where the creators are dying, especially because everything now is red taped. What can you say? What can't you say? Who am I offending? If I say this, did I apologize quick enough? Have I even apologized? I think that's where certainly from my experiences, I'm starting like a little bit of a fan, starting to sound a little bit like a fanboy here, really. But that's why I appreciate the work that you do. It's very risky, should we say, in time where everything is very black and white, it's either really out there or it's really pissy. I think yours does the masterful line of jumping between both without really offending anyone. I could watch you interview Nazis and not be offended. It's really weird and that's you know testament to how good you are at your job. Well that's nice of you to say that. Like I, I, I you know one day we may get it wrong. I've probably got it slightly wrong in the in the past from time to time. I have the luxury of the edit so that we interrogate you know when when I'm in an encounter with a neo-Nazi or a racist or whoever it may be. Mm -hmm. Every moment of that has been looked at multiple times to make sure that um, it's coming across in the right way. And last year at the height of, of, of one of the lockdowns and with um, Black Lives Matter going on in the background and I, there was a furore around, a very understandable one around use of the N-word on TV because in a local news broadcast it had popped up. And we were repeating a clip show or a sort of revisit show called Life on the Edge. And we got into a lot of conversations about not just racists and, you know, the, uh, and, and how they used offensive language, but also about when I'd reported on um, elements of the black community or, or stories in jail where a slightly different version of the N-word was being used and to what extent... You know, it's it's kind of you, you can get lost in the conversation sometimes, like where you're thinking, like, well, 
those guys are using it, right? That's a lang that's the language of the street in certain parts of America is to use almost like it means person. It doesn't always mean black person. It just means person, right? But at the same time, I as a white person with a, a um, you know in a majority white country are choosing to put this person who's black on air using that word. What how, what does that really mean? And you know, taken one way, you're like, wow, this is we are getting into this sort of vortex of um of of kind of of thinking so hard about what do, you know it's like it's a guy just using his daily language but actually i tend to think look for various reasons that's where you have to go you you do have to think really carefully you know like i i you know the channel was getting nervous about it and they were like well what about this we've counted the number of times this word's used and that's words used and this is the context here and that's the, and we had multiple zooms where we were like, well, how? What about this one? And what about that one? And uh, but I actually think that was that was basically positive to think really hard about that. And and anyway, I went down a bit of a rabbit hole, but I, I want to acknowledge what you said. And and I think that in general, um, I, I I work from the assumption that like racist people are reachable. Like actually, that rather than um, sort of revile them that you you know my work is predicated on the idea that you extend them the courtesy of of listening and and engaging with the view to changing minds right and and actually uh, rather than entrenching them in whatever their view is that that it that actually there's a chance to you know I'm not it's not a salvationist they're not like oh, I'm going to go out and save these people it's more like that um we that we there is a chance that you know at the very least you shouldn't allow yourself to um betray your own standards of humanism right and actually having have uh, politely engaging challenging and thereby having that you know ha that being a way of maybe bringing people around but either way extending some um sort of wider sense of modeling what respect looks like yeah, just leading on from that, there's been a, a documentary or a series that you started at, at some point and going, oh, I'm not sure if I would you know, continue with this or not. Um, have you ever got to that point? And if you have, then, you know, what has made you continue? Well, the, there's a few answers to that. I mean, there's been stories I've discontinued, I would say, mainly due to the number one pitfall of TV or, or, or maybe the number one kind of danger or fear which is boredom like that you're actually the what you're the story you're telling is just not interesting and um or that you can't tell it in a way that feels interesting that you're not engaging the subject but usually it's the subject itself mm -hmm. so for example i did one about um mma mixed martial arts it's actually an interesting subject probably like i'm sure it is everything's interesting in its way but it felt like just it's a for me, what I need is some level of kind of moral complexity, like some sense of it being right on the edge of troubling or weird. MMA is a sport, like it's a valid sport. In many ways, it's less dangerous than boxing, right? There's fewer head injuries, the bouts are shorter, they, um, they don't wear gloves so that arguably they're not hitting as hard. And either way, it's ground and pound. They're down. You know, sometimes it's done in seconds, right? It's not like 12 rounds of three minutes each. 
so that that after about we shot about a week on a story about MMA in America, and, and I remember thinking like this isn't happening. It just doesn't feel that there's enough, you know, there's anything kind of to get my teeth into. Mm-hmm. I mean, stories where I've worried about it being too extreme in some way has almost never happened. Like I sort of feel as though if the story feels like it's right on the edge. So for example, you know, we've done stories about probably one where we worried a lot was about pedophiles in LA where they were, cause I've done two about pedophiles uh, in America. One was about a, a mental hospital for pedophiles in, in Coalinga. And the second one was called Among the Sex Offenders. I should call, I should say sex offenders because actually one or two of them were um, not paedophiles, but but something else. And um, and I remember thinking, is this going to look like? Oh, I'm just going to spend a bunch of time with some sex offenders and paedophiles for no very good reason other than I just find them sort of fascinating and strange and you know, it'll be like a safari, you know, like, like that felt like a potentially kind of damaging and weird and not something that, you know, and this was in the aftermath of, of the Jimmy Savile affair. So there was a, a you know, it, there was already this pre-existing feeling of not just, um, wow, uh, are we living in a world where VIP pedophiles are allowed to exist, but also that, that Louis, because I've had done a program about Jimmy Savile and not outed him, as a paedophile because I hadn't known, but that, that, I, that I'd fallen down on the job on that one. And now I'm going back saying like, I'm, I'm going to go and talk to some more paedophiles. Anyway, the bottom line is it's a really good program. We made it, you know, and it took a lot of, I think, sensitivity and difficult decisions about what was appropriate, and what wasn't. But in the end, um, we got there. Like, and it's a, it's a film about society's untouchables and, what's the what what level of um kind of civil containment is justifiable for for sex offenders who've come out of prison and are now have now notionally paid their debt to society and are living in the community like what whether you like it or not those people exist in large numbers hundreds and thousands of them and some of them i i'd argue you know are 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 in some sense redeemable like in sense they they deserve, you know, obviously not to go and be school teachers, but, but to be allowed to provide for themselves, right, and their families, and 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 so forth. So it, 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 it so it's about framing the question in a way that feels um, kind of like valid and interesting, and 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 actually, you know, in the end, you you can get there, you know, you can get there and figure out what it is in this story that I'm interested in that feels like an, a sort of social question or, an, or a thorny dilemma that people can, uh, that, that people will worry, kind of worry over or think about and that will get in, you know, start, and you know, maybe start an argument, you know, with people who are watching it saying, like, I think, you know, making these people do such and such, being monitored around the clock is, and actually making it impossible for them to get a job is too much. And someone else might say, say, I don't think it goes far enough. And, but it's those fine, fine, finely balanced moral questions that I find most interesting. Wow. That was a long answer to your question. <laughs> no, no, it was a very, very good answer. It ties in perfectly to what I was going to ask you. Do you get commissioned by somebody or do you do it yourself? Is that led based on, you know, what Louis thinks or what Louis wants to do? 
you just said, you know, paedophiles. I want to go and speak to paedophiles and understand what that, what it is. Is that always Louis led, or, you know, so what Louis thinks, or you led by, uh, you know, a social aspect of what's going on? Because obviously, from what I've watched, you've done a lot of prisons, a lot of world's most dangerous prisons. Like, is that something that ticks Louis's box? I would say it's a bit of both, but um, the bottom line is, I have to really, you know, my curiosity is is a um, is the foundation for everything. You know, so a lot of the times it will be an idea I've been thinking about for a while, but or, or but sometimes it will be um, an idea that someone on the team brings to me, you know, yeah. or based on a newspaper article or, or something. And um, and it's very rare that it's not something, you know, there aren't that many, I can say stories in the world, but in the sense of like fundamental moral conundrums, you know, they take, they tend to repeat themselves. Like they sort of exist, you know, a lot of them are about sexuality, a lot of them about religion, cult-like behavior, a lot of them about crime and violence. And those repeat themselves through stories. So whichever prison or gang or religious group it happens to be, the themes will be somewhat similar. And they're to do with what, you know, where moral lines exist and how we conduct ourselves in a kind of, respectful and humanistic society. So um, I, you know, and, and in the end, I have to feel, yeah, so, but, you know, if I'm working with a team that are really, is really good, really, uh, then more of the ideas will come from, from, from them. And in fact, in the last few years, I remember the series I made in America a couple of years ago was called um, Altered States one of the team came along and said, what about something about polyamory, which is the practice of having multiple partners, not, not, as, not as a swinger, like not just sort of for parties, but you actually have committed relationships with a number of different people at the same time. So, and you might even all live together in what's called a polycule um, or a thruple, like, and it might be two men and one woman or two women and one man, or, and they might just, you know, people might even come and go, but either way, I remember thinking like, well, this is something we've thought about, but I'd always worried it felt almost too low stakes, like that actually what, what you know, just to put it bluntly, like, well, and what in fact's wrong with that, right? It's all consenting adults and therefore that's fine, but I'm not sure what's the moral wrinkle that I'm worrying away at. But then I thought about it more and um, realized that maybe that the potential for you know, because of the setup, there's more potential for someone feeling left out, right? Or an, a sense of unbalancedness in the um, in the relationship dynamics, and that maybe that was something I could sort of look at. So we ended up doing it. It turns, you know, sometimes it's a lighter story. Sometimes the lighter stories are the hardest because you have to work harder to find that piece of that bit of engagement and that through line that takes you through 60 minutes. But either way, we made it. So that's an example of someone else bringing me a story. But in the end, it's it's all founded on my personal state in the story, if that makes sense. That makes absolute sense. I know you've got some hours coming and by the time this airs, you would have already put it out there. So hopefully we can talk about it. But what made you understand something like Tiger King, you know, Joe Exotic, what made you go and film him first? I'd never really heard of him until the Netflix uh, issue had came out, probably about a year ago. So what made you identify him as somebody that was, you know, ultimately batshit crazy and probably end up in jail? 
you know, I, I first filmed with um, Joe Exotic in 2011. And because I've gone back and, and you know, I've made this program in which I um, go, you know, go back and meet some of his family and friends and find out, you know, as you know, as anyone who saw the Tiger King series knows, he was caught up in a murder for hire case mm -hmm. and is now doing 22 years in prison. He's also been convicted on animal cruelty charges. But um, back then, I was the first crew. He told me this, in fact. I was the first TV guy, first documentary crew ever to go there. Um, and I spent eight or nine days filming with him over the course of three trips. The reason that he was on our radar was that um, I had been thinking about the relationship between humans and animals. And I'd already made a program called African hunting holiday that was looking at trophy hunting in America, sorry, in South Africa and the way Americans go over there and the weirdness of, because many of these animals that they hunt are in enclosures, not small ones. Like it's not like they're in a chicken coop, but they're in very large farms with fences around them. And the animals are fed and maintained, you know, through the years so that they can be hunted. And the bizarreness of, um, kind of bringing life into the world or so that other people can come in and shoot the animals and the weirdness of like the farmers whose animals they are really care for the animals like not they literally feed them but they also like they have a degree of i would say love for them right mm -hmm. and and i just thought that was a really interesting you know and and you know strange situation in which you had you know, you raise an animal and then you get some guy to come in and for money, shoot the animal, right? It's, I, I just, and so that's sort of the focus of, although of, of the, um, of the, of the documentary. And by the same token, I began thinking about, well, what about animals in captivity in America? Like, that's quite weird that you profess to love the animals, but you're keeping it in conditions that are nothing like the conditions it would have in the wild, right? and the morality of that, like, I love mad. And I realized, you know, anyone who's seen tigers on TV, like you, you realize, okay, there are tigers like in private hands in, um, in America, like you can own a tiger, a private individual or a lion or a bear. And you think that's pretty weird. Like, I love my bear. You're like, well, if you love him, why is he in a small cage in your, in your yard? And I looked it up and I, I, I saw a little documentary. It was called, I think it was called The Tiger Next Door. And it turned out it's a fairly big, which, so that they went before me, but not they didn't, go, they didn't feature Joe Exotic. That was in 2009 or 10. And I watched that and I thought, there's something in this, this world of Americans living in suburbs or rural parts of the Midwest and the West, having huge animals feeding them, but keeping them in relatively small cages. And then it did a bit of research. And I don't know if it was me or one of my team found Joe Exotic and his park in Oklahoma and called him up and he was like, yeah, you can come on down. And like, he was thrilled, you know, he'd already been, his zoo at that point was already 10 years old. In a way, it's extraordinary that no other documentary had been there before me. You know, that to me is the weirdest part because he was just like, there, like, come and get me. You know, here I am. The murder for hire case, I did not see coming. I knew he was in a feud with Carol Baskin, but um, I had no idea it would go to the lengths 
that it did. He ranted about her constantly. He hated her. He was obsessed with her. Yeah, and, and when I looked at some of the old material, I realized there were veiled threats that he was making about her, but not. I never imagined it would get to where it got to. Is she in a new series? Like, have you managed to have a conversation with her? So for the latest project, Joe's in prison, so he's hard to speak to. Um, but Carol and Howard Baskin, Howard's her, her husband, are, are out there still alive, fortunately, and living in Tampa, Florida, running their facility, which is called Big Cat Rescue. So I spent a few days with them. And um, they, the, you know, while we were with them, they came into possession of Joe's Park, right? Because the legal case that was being fought between them for years um, was resolved. And then finally, the park, you know, because Joe owed them a million, a million dollars for a, co a copyright infringement case. There were other suits, but that was the bottom, that was, a, you know, the root cause of it. And so in the end, to settle the case, the park was handed over, the zoo, in other words, was handed over to Howard and Carol. So while we were there, we filmed them on the, you know, at the park, more, more or less taking possession of it. In fact, it was only, it was Carol's second visit, but they'd only had it a week earlier. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it was heavy stuff. Wow. That, that's going to be heavy stuff. Um, I do have to ask this though, please tell me, you asked me if, if he genuinely thought Trump was going to pardon him, like he's crazy, right? Well, needless to say, I didn't get a conversation with Joe himself because he was in prison, but I asked his lawyer, I spent quite a bit of time with Joe's lawyer and they were, he said they were a hundred percent convinced that a pardon would be coming through. Yeah. And, um, you know, one of the upshots, you know, of Tiger King, the series was that so many people watched it and warmed to Joe for various reasons that they had this very well-funded and widely supported campaign to secure his release. But if you've been reading the papers or watching the headlines, you will know that, in fact, Trump did not pardon Joe for reasons known only to himself. But they fight on. I believe they're still active and I think they're trying to get President Biden to pardon Joe now. Mm -hmm. Again, we've got a very, I'm very conscious of time and I appreciate all your time. Two little questions from me. What does the future hold for Louis? Well, we've talked about this, Troy, because as you know, I'm making not just my own programs, but through my production company, I've been collaborating with people who I like, who's, who I find interesting mm -hmm. and, you know, putting other voices on screen and making programs in which I don't appear, but I have a sort of shaping or behind the scenes role. Yeah. And um, for those listening, Troy and I have had a couple of, you know, not in depth, but we've exchanged a few words on that subject. And um, when Troy's ready to hang up his boots, <laughs> as you know, we, we're going to talk about that. And, or even before, while you're still wearing your boots, we'll figure, we'll figure it out. But um, so the future, hopefully, you know, I've got a program coming up very soon. It's a three-part series about the, the golden age of snooker. Alex Higgins, Steve Davis, Jimmy White, and others. Again, I exact it, but I am not in it. So, and, I, and for me, that's really exciting the idea of ha having a role where I don't it doesn't always depend on having me on screen and other you got I, I, we've announced a pro project with Alice Levine channel 4 project called Alice Levine sex odyssey which I'm excited about um 
and other feature projects that aren't ready to be announced. So hopefully, like I, I'm not hanging up my microphone, but I am trying to um, expand the ways in which I make TV so that I can um, have a behind the scenes role. So that it's called Mind House is the company. And um, that's where a lot of my energies are focused now. Is this going to give you uh, more time at home as well? Is that the idea with you and your kids? Do you know, it's funny you should ask that. How, you kind of read my mind. Did I talk to you about that? <laughs> you know, I think anyone with kids knows that actually, you know, small children, children of school age, that whenever you travel with, you know, for work, you're, you're kind of in an emotional sense, to kind of taking money out of the bank. Like you're, you're, you're trespassing or, or at least using up a lot of goodwill because being a single parent for the remaining parent, you know, who stays behind um is really hard and you know and i say that as someone who's never had to do it right i'm not trying to assume any kind of moral superiority i just know through conversations i've had with my wife she feels that quite keenly so if i can travel less for work that would be good i think in every aspect is the sacrifice isn't it to get the end result for for you and what you do you have to go away and be away from the family for a long time it interrupts home life and while people might go, you know, you're financially better off in a financial better position than most, you know, should I say we certainly lose the memories and intimacies of home? Yeah, definitely. And our our kids lose, right? Uh, or, or And our wives or partners, husbands, whoever can lose because, you know, being a mum or a dad isn't just about putting food on the table and making bank, right? It's actually, you know, it's a whole a full complement. It's... It, it's about being present and, and being able to have an, you know, being around when your kids are growing up. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I suppose that goes without saying, but the years pass so quickly that, um, and the children's needs change quite quickly. And you, I, I'm, I'm conscious of it. I'm conscious of, of, you know, it's so easy to get it wrong. In fact, being a dad or a mum basically means getting it wrong. Like you're never going to get it 100% right. And sometimes I behave in ways and I think, wow, uh, you know, I really, I really messed that up or, or, or I got angry or I just made a joke that was ill judged or just behaved in a way. Just sometimes I'm very childish in and make inappropriate jokes. I used to have a bad habit of, I thought it was funny to, um, you know, like playground insult humor, like um, you're so ugly. I'm not talking about you, Troy. <laughs> but this is an example you're so ugly that you know when you went into the ugly convention they said sorry no professionals you know that kind of stupid <laughs> like um and i i got I, I started trying to think of them and i thought it was funny to say them to the kids and then my wife reminded me like you know they're probably going to say that stuff at school and you know maybe it's not she kind of pulled because a lot of it is also weight focused you're so fat kind of thing or your mum's so hairy and it's a fine <laughs> line anyway this is me saying I had to call time on that particular way of bonding with my kids. <laughs> What's the uh, longest time you've ever been away at any one given moment? Um, for work, our rule is two weeks. I don't think I might have done fifteen days, and it, but it never, it's never gone on. And two weeks is rare, but I did two weeks last year for the Joe Exotic project, and um, a week to ten days is more normal. Once I was going to do a program in Papua New Guinea, and the only way we could make it work was if I was away for four weeks. 
And after a lot of conversations about it, Nancy, my wife, said, OK, you know, I think we can make it work. And then in the end, we never made the programme. Mm-hmm. If, if it was a sort of, some sort of dream project, I don't doubt uh, my wife would make it happen in some way, but it's not ideal. And I'm trying to basically... Oh, Louis, are you there? I think we lost you. No, my fault. I, I was, you know, welcome to the world of COVID, <laughs> where everything hinges on your internet connection. Yesterday, I lost my internet for half the day. And, you know, in a world of normal-sized people... Like my voice in meetings was like, I, I had to call in on my mobile phone and say like, hello, can we do this? You know what I mean? Like I just felt completely incapacitated. It was bizarre. And I thought nothing works. I couldn't even turn the heating up, you know, because everything's connected to the, to the internet now. I was like, this world run by the internet is all very well till you lose your internet and then you're back in the stone age, you know, rubbing sticks together. A hundred percent. I'll wrap this up because I'm conscious of time and, you know, is there a charity that you are connected to or one that you feel emotionally attached charity, to? Charity, I've been doing the odd thing for the Trestle Trust. They basically, you know, with people struggling without work in lockdown and different people close to the breadline, the Trestle Trust has um, been providing for them with food and whatnot. Ah, so for, for doing this, me and my family are going to contribute and make a donation to the Trestle Trust. Oh, nice one. That's very kind of you. Thanks, Troy. No, no, no. I appreciate it. We appreciate the time again. I know you're a busy man, so thank you very much. It's appreciated. Well, thanks for thanks for thinking of me and thanks for getting me involved. I appreciate it, Troy. Let's keep the conversation going. It's always a pleasure talking to you. Thanks very much, mate. Cheers. Take care. Bye. And just to remind you that Louis' charity of choice was the Trussell Trust. You can find them at trusseltrust.org. Thanks to Louis and to you for listening. Please follow, rate and review and join us again soon. Produced by the Podcast Company for Dini Media.